0: One. Fragments of silicon, not with
1: a whimper, but with a bang.
0: Done for this one. season on yeah. twitch yes <laughs> thank you, you know, it's like um yeah it's uh, we haven't done one since last season which, you know, which has been a while uh, like what two months anyway mm,
1: something like that
0: yeah. anyway well we are here once again and um joining us on the program again i think what well, this is time number four getting a lot of uh, familiar faces but anyway um we are happy to welcome back on the program phil elliott of square enix europe and the square enix collective
1: hey how's it going
0: it's going fine uh, how are you doing today
1: good yeah it's uh, it's been a super busy start to the year i'm very very happy to be one of your uh, emerging familiar faces uh, that's uh, a great honor for me oh, thank, you.
0: <laughs> thank you and we are uh, Always glad to have you on the program. You know, it's like... And let's see. Um, where to start? Where to start? Because there's always so much to cover. Um, I think we should start with the Turing Test. Uh, at least... Um, uh, I'm wondering, has it done uh, well for you in the, what, six or seven months since it's been released?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was really pleasing, actually. Um, it, uh, it, it was probably the first game... Which uh, in which everything came together as as we planned it. So um, just to sort of step back a little bit for anybody who's not familiar with Collective, we started publishing games last year. Before that, we were really about helping teams to build community and supporting Kickstarter projects. Um, so moving from that onto publishing is is quite a big jump. Now it probably sounds strange me saying that because obviously Square Enix is a publisher, so we're used to publishing games and um, and. You know, I think that's a fair assumption to make, but uh it's obviously very different when you have um, you know, huge IPs like Final Fantasy and Tomb Raider and Hitman and so on. Uh, you know, with big studios dedicated to them. You know, what we're doing with with much smaller indie teams is um is a very different process. We're we're sort of trying to find Different uh, different types of market. We're working with different levels of budget, uh, and, and in truth, you have different skills and different um, approaches that you need to make as a result. So, we uh, we had to test a lot of things. Uh, with the first game, was uh, was, was quite a, a tough uh, project to to start with. I think it was a point and click adventure. Really nice game. Very well um, reviewed on uh, on Steam with respect to user reviews, um, but probably not the right project for us to you know if we if we'd been looking to make a big splash um still you know that that did fine but but for Turing Test um you know that's a portal style game a first person puzzler and a really nice looking game as well so you know that was the one where I felt that we'd uh filled all the gaps in you know tidied up all the loose ends and everything kind of came together um so yeah I guess that's a long-winded way of answering your question but yeah it's been it's been great we've really enjoyed working with the team.
0: Uh, yeah, we interviewed Bulkhead about the turning test as well, and um, we reviewed the game, um, made our top, uh, top list. Oh, great. Like, uh, you know, our colleague uh, Pettyfan here especially liked it.
1: Yes, yes, I did. So, Excellent. yeah. Excellent.
0: Pretty good experience. Um, are you uh, also working with um, Bulkhead to bring the game to the PlayStation 4, or are they working with somebody else there?
1: No, they're actually um, they actually self-published on consoles. So, the way that we work at Collective is we really want to focus on where we add value to a team. We don't want to, uh, you know, kind of go in and take over elements of it where we don't need to. Um, if we acted as publisher for Xbox and PlayStation, then we would be taking a cut of revenues. And in the instance where a developer doesn't need us to do that and they can do it themselves, then it makes no sense for us to, you know, to take those revenues. And I mean, ultimately, our ambition with Collective is is is, is mul- multiple things. But one of the key ones is is trying to help to build sustainable businesses. Um, yeah, but, but we feel that that's, that's important for the industry, which is, because it's such a a fast-moving sector and um, uh, and more stability, you know, is is a good thing. So, for us, where a team doesn't need us to to act as a publisher on certain platforms, um, then it it just simply makes no sense to do so. Uh, It means that more revenue ultimately flows back to the developer instead of coming to us. Makes sense, but it sounds
0: like um, if they do need you, you would publish them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we have, um, yeah, we've, si- we've signed a number of games where we'll be the publisher across all platforms. Um, it, in, it wasn't so much in this case that uh, that Bulkhead, um, you know, didn't believe in our ability to publish on console. Uh, but it's just that they already had uh, existing relationships, specifically with Xbox, because their first game, uh, which which was out, I think, the year before, or the two years before, Chewing test was called Numa, and they published that through Idea Xbox. So because they already had that relationship, they knew the folks at Xbox. Uh, it just made sense for them to kind of continue that, and they just didn't need another middleman for in that particular instance. Most of the projects we work with, um, you know, a lot of other teams won't have already shipped a game in that respect. So therefore, if they don't have that relationship, that's that's where we can sort of step in and, and help them. Um, and, and of course, there are also uh, some. I suppose not savings is the is the wrong word, but some efficiencies. How's uh, that for a for a, for a co- bit of corporate speak mm. <laughs> to be made? Um, yeah, I, I mean, what we did with the Turing test was we invested in, in the creation of things like key art and trailers and um, and all that kind of thing, which you know helped to sell the game. Now, we obviously you know completely allow bulkhead to reuse that content for their Xbox and PlayStation games. You know, we're not going to say that they can't use the key art for their game because we're not going to earn from it because it's not related to the PC version. So, um, but but of course, you know, when you're putting a game out on across all consoles and PC at the same time, then actually what you're spending in terms of media. So, in other words, in terms of advertising on websites uh, or Twitch or where, wherever um if if you're if you're sort of integrating all the platforms, then then actually you can sometimes get better results. In this case, uh, you know we all agreed that um, it would make more sense ultimately for Bulkhead to 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 not need that middleman. You know the the, the level of efficiency, if you like, just wasn't didn't didn't make it worthwhile for them, and um, and that's fine by us. Hmm.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, right. So moving onward uh, to Black the Fall and Tokyo uh, Dark. Um, these are two games yeah. that were supposed to, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, supposed to come out last year, but didn't. Is like, there any particular reason for why that happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard, actually, to um, to pin release dates on, on games at this level a long way in advance. Um from our side, you know, we don't see any value in, in telling a developer they must give us the precise release date. A lot of, a lot of release dates for games that go through Kickstarter, you know, that, that release date would have been estimated at the point that the Kickstarter launches. Um, and that's way before that, you know, we would have been appointed as publisher, um, you know, assuming the developer wanted us to be publisher. So for um, And then additionally for, for the Kickstarter fall,
0: games, there's the moving target of what the game includes if it has stretch goals.
1: Well yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for Black the Fall, the game was fairly consistent in terms of what they wanted to do in terms of scope, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we sort of came on board as, as the game's publisher and we sort of worked with them. We, we see our job when we're working with teams as much as possible to uh, you know not only provide a good sales platform and, and sort of help them to earn as much money as possible by by bringing it to as big an audience as possible but for us we feel there's a really important responsibility with respect to advice and feedback so we'll always try to help teams um, understand perhaps which which parts of the game aren't holding together so well if there are certain things they might do to um, you know that That might have a good impact on things like reviews uh, and, and ultimately, you know, sales. And so, you know, we work on that on that basis with all teams. Now, if a team sees an opportunity, they think it's worth taking some extra time to add layers of polish or to change systems, um, then then obviously, you know, it's 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 perfectly fine for them to do that. Depending on whether or not, you know, ultimately they. They have the, the backing the funding to you know the budget to actually be able to take the extra time in the case of Black the fall um, you know that was something they wanted to pursue and they did um, they did source some additional funding from a private investor to allow them to do so and candidly you know I think the results are going to be really clear if anybody played the early demo of the game from Kickstarter and then compared that to uh, you know perhaps if, uh, if they saw it at one of the events we had it at last year, and then they'll compare that again to to the game that releases, um, you know, later this year. Uh, yeah, I, I think, well, the difference is is, is very clear to see, um, and that's quite exciting, you know, to be able to help a team to to do that, to to give them really the the benefits of of advice and feedback. But ultimately, you know, it's important that it has to be the developer's choice, right? I mean, we can't for, we're not going to force them to release a game before it's not ready. Similarly, you know, we're not going to force them to delay a game if they can't afford to do so or they don't feel it's in their best interests. Um, so with respect to Black, The Fall and, and Tokyo Dark, both of those games uh, have lengthened the the dev cycles essentially to, to to make a better game, you know, to add more polish, to tidy up, neaten up some of the systems or the animation um, and, um, uh, you know, so that, so that when they release, uh, if, you know, look at these teams... This is sort of two plus years of work that's gone into both of those games, respectively. Um, and you know, from the developer's perspective, we want to try and help them do everything we can to optimise their chance for success. Um, if uh, if if the game goes well, and and you know, as well as it can do, then they've got a great chance to earn enough money to to go on making games and make the next one and 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 continue to be financially independent and financial independence is is another way of saying effectively creative independence and again um you know i think that's uh, that's good for gamers um it, it means that people are more likely to continue to see new and unique games as opposed to perhaps um relying on uh, you know on sort of franchises and sequels uh, which of course are also a very important part of the industry but but you know we know that um that, that video games um as an industry sort of thrives on, on, on new ideas and diverse perspectives. So
0: yeah, that's definitely an important thing to consider that uh, Mm, even if it's not like part of the official agreement, if someone's paying for your stuff, you're going to change the things that they want changed or whatever. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, as I say, it's at the end, at the end of the day, we're not the IP owners. We don't take games from, uh, from the developers through this process. Um, so we're always very respectful of that. You know, they are—they own the IP. They own the game they're making. Um, and so, you know, it's our job to to offer the best advice we can. But it's not our job to take creative control or make those decisions on behalf of developers. We, um, you know, we obviously take more control when it comes to marketing and sales decisions. Decisions, you know that that's that's our job, kind of thing. But even then, you know, it's it's down to make sure that the developers will always approve marketing plans and always approve PR plans to make sure they're comfortable with with how their game is being represented.
0: Sounds uh, sounds like a right decent way of doing things.
1: Um, well, we hope so. Um, I think you know one of the things when we launched Collective, we knew we were up against was. Cynicism. You know, why is a big publisher doing this? Um, How are we gonna? How is Square Enix gonna ruin crowdfunding and ruin indie development and steal the souls and uh, and and, you know skim off money and and that kind of thing? So, you know, we know that we have to take the right approach. We have to we have to approach this with integrity and and openness and transparency. Um, So that's what we've tried to do. it's funny. Somebody asked me the other day, actually, what 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 was our our kind of New Year's resolution for 2017 for Collective, and I think I'm not sure it's a resolution, but but one of my real hopes is that by the end of 2017, um, if if you're familiar with with the games that Collective publishes, then you will have a real understanding of what it is that Collective is here for. Um, I think it's fair to say that perhaps that hasn't been super clear in the past couple of years um, and people have you know maybe prejudged us a little which is fine and, and, and not unfair um, but I hope that you know I've, all, I've always felt that proof would be something that we have to um, you know show over a period of time and I hope that by the end of this year we'll be uh, we'll be able to hold our heads up and, and be considered as a valuable part of the indie game sector
0: well it- Especially interesting in these times because you know the indie landscape is not so much changing as it's getting ever bigger, you know, ever larger, and it's getting harder for you know indie titles to stand out without some sort of um um
1: beacon, if you will. Mm, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think what, what we've hit is the point in the industry's history now where it's never been easier to actually make a game. Uh, The tools are available readily and and free. The distribution platforms are available readily and, 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 you know, pretty easily accessible to people with respect to, you know, things like Steam. Um, And uh, you know, there's tutorials, there are courses, there's education. Uh, You know, if you want to make a game, there are ways that you can do it without you know, you can put a lot of effort into it, or you can put a little bit. But the point is, the barriers are very, very low. So what that means is that, you know, a lot of people love video games. It's a, it's an amazing industry to be in, and, and to be a games developer is has become a real aspirational thing, which is fantastic. Um, I think the the best chance for for that diversity of perspective I mentioned is, you know, is if is if everybody is making games. That, you know, that's brilliant. That's very exciting, but it does bring a challenge, and that challenge is the noise um if if everybody's releasing games uh, then and we you know we've seen it on steam the number of games released each year has increased massively you know particularly in the last couple of years and um and so as an individual game how, how do you compete against the noise how do you stand out um well, i mean to be fair we see it with with everything where there is a bit of success you know oftentimes we'll see a gold rush follow and it's no different with the indie scene Um, you know sort of six seven years ago we saw that the the pioneers you know people like Mike Biffle and um, and uh, Phil Fish and Jonathan Blow and so on and and that inspired people and it showed people that that you know it was possible for for individuals or small teams to make games to have success Um, but yeah you know now how do you stand out I think there's still multiple routes to awareness we certainly don't claim that you know we 're the best or the only route and, um, and we 're certainly not trying to be competitive with indie publishers uh, or indies that are trying to self publish but we do believe it's important for there to be multiple routes um, and there are so many games out there there's so many good games with with talented teams uh, you know most most often new teams people who have you know maybe uh, may, maybe just graduated or, or, or maybe working on their first ever game. And you know, I, I do think that it's it's important for key players in the industry to to take a role and responsibility in nurturing that talent. Um, you know, if a team comes along and, and and they get a deal with someone like Devolver, or, um, uh, or or they manage to get an opportunity to go through Idea Xbox, you know, fantastic. We don't want to poach those people away and and sort of cause uh, you know downside in in, in this particular ecosystem system um, but you know can we find other teams that maybe haven't got those opportunities and then help them to um, to, to, to have you know certainly enough success to go on and keep making games um, we see a lot of teams that don't well they don't even get to release their first game because they just run out of, of money or opportunity uh, and a lot of teams that do get to release their first game simply don't earn enough to go on and make the second now the, the paradox there is that in order to get better and improve, you have to keep shipping games because every game you ship is, uh, you know, this amazing uh, amount of experience that that will improve you as a team and, and, and as an individual. But if you don't get the chance to keep shipping games, how do you learn? How do you get better? Um, you know, it's a little bit chicken and egg. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's our ambition, I suppose, is, um, is how can we help te- teams to to sort of beat that that noise a little bit and and just help a few more uh put their heads above uh keep their heads above water like i mean yeah
0: there are multiple routes there are multiple there are not just multiple indie publishers um there are um pr firms that i work with and all that stuff but you know the the overall point is just being a good game isn't necessarily enough to get you noticed (laughs) no
1: it's not which again you know is an interesting thing i've certainly seen uh in the past few years that the the quality bar has definitely increased i think that's again it's a good thing it's a you know i think we're seeing um better skilled people uh, or i should say people with better skills i think people are learning more and more from each other i think that uh you know people aren't having to sort of learn for themselves and figure it all out anymore there are good engines out there where there's multitudes of tutorials and plugins and and ways to actually increase quality um does that make it harder again for new people coming in yes it does because instead of you, you know let's say the bar was 50% quality uh 3 4 years ago you know now it's maybe 75 or 80% quality and people have to keep improving their literally improving their game um to uh, to be able to compete but uh you know I mean I think that's just the nature of things there's there's nothing that um, that we can do about that really I think that's 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 just the way things go as uh, uh, you know as people get more and more used to the tools
0: it would make sense um, you know, getting back to um, Tokyo dark dark and black ball mm. um, what is the current status of these two games
1: so they are both slated for a 2017 release. Um, we're actually getting pretty close now with Black Before. Um, we haven't announced an exact release date yet, uh, but we'll be doing so very soon. Um, Tokyo Dark is going to fall a little later in the year, uh, but, um, you know, there's, no, there's nothing, no, no concerns. It's, uh, as I say, it's really just about um, sort of adding some layers of polish. We've got, uh, but, I mean, those are not the only two games coming out for us this year. We're, we're actually... Uh, planning on releasing seven games in total. Um, a bunch of those aren't yet announced so I can't share them with you but in terms of the ones that um, that you may be aware of, um, we have All My Godheads which is uh, a two versus two uh, local multiplayer game uh, and that's coming on really nicely. And um, uh, also we have Fear Effect Sedna of course which is um, from the from the same developers as Goetia. Uh, and that was the uh, the fear effect uh, i p that we, we, we uh, we've talked about previously in fact um and uh, and also for got an am which which we debuted at uh, the e g x event in birmingham in the uk um last i want to say september september october i forget exactly which month it was now um but um but yeah so so we got some very exciting titles plus plus a few more that we haven't actually announced yet and uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be an interesting sort of next 12 months.
0: Sounds like it, sounds like it. Uh, anyway, I want to zero in on a Forgotten End because uh, we mm. haven't talked about this one yet. No.
1: So,
0: um, for those who might not know what the game is, what is it all about?
1: So um, this one's—I have to say—it's really worth going and checking out a video on this one because um, the, the visuals are absolutely gorgeous. It's uh, it's about a character called Anne who um, is what's called a, a Forgotling and uh, the the story is that her and her master are trying to find their way back to uh, you know to to the sort of the, to the normal universe, uh, but they're sort of stuck in this in this realm and. I don't. I don't want to sort of spoil too much about the story. There's there's a there's a lot that kind of goes in there. Um, we have announced a teaser trailer, which which just hints at some of the some of the storyline. Um, but um, the the game itself is a is a side-scrolling uh, sort of RPG. Um, and as I say, you know, it's it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, the visuals are very very sweet, and uh, it's it's got a lovely story too. So we'll we'll be talking a lot more about that. Um, probably in the second half of this year, and um, revealing a little bit more about the characters and the storyline and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we're, we're super excited about this one. We think, particularly for fans of Square Enix, um, it's, it's it's a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs>
0: Indeed. And um, what kind of game is it? Um, is it a platformer?
1: Um... Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a I guess I guess you'd call it a platform. It's not super uh, kind of. Um, you know, it's not like a timing-based platformer where you know, kind of twitch skills come in important. It's it's uh, it's more of a sort of adventure, I guess you'd call it. You I, know, you've got sort of puzzles to solve and and, and stuff like that. But um, but but in terms of the mechanics of how you get about and explore, then you know, it's it's a yeah, it's a two D platformer uh, kind of mechanic.
0: Um, in terminology, I believe they call that a Metroidvania.
1: Oh right, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's yeah. a fair description. Uh,
0: I, now, it may not be official, but it's just the shorthand everyone knows. Uh,
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, good point.
0: And yeah, I, I've seen the tre- uh, teaser trailer and it looks um, stunning. Like, um, Is this like hand-drawn animation?
1: It is, yeah. And um, And I think the interesting thing is, and we obviously intentionally set it up this way, when you watch the trailer, uh, you sort of start off with, with some obvious cutscenes um, uh, that kind of set up the story a little bit. And then, and then you sort of uh, see Anne lying down on her bed. It's a sort of a top-down view. And you kind of zoom in. And I, I th- the expectation is that, that people, you know, are supposed to think that that's still part of the cutscene, But in fact, actually, at that point, we've moved into in-game visuals. Um, and, you know, as Anne sort of gets up and starts to wander around, you realise that that is actually the in-game art style and uh and it was it was lovely when we we actually um uh, debuted it on the PlayStation Access Stage at EGX and it we had a great response um i was sort of in the crowd for it when uh, when the trailer was being played and when, once people realized that that was actually the in-game uh visual style there was there was a little bit of a, a sort of collective intake of breath, <laughs> and it was it was really satisfying actually from our side to uh, to see that happen. So we had the developers up there talking a little bit about the game, and uh, Holly Bennett was hosting it, and I think she's um, she's uh, already become a big fan of uh, of that particular project. So yeah, we've got high hopes for that game. Um, uh, but what I would say beyond that is that the team are absolutely fantastic. Uh, Alfred N'Goyen is is the uh, the head of Throughline Games. And he's actually got a background in, in film direction. Um, and I think that really comes through in, in that the a, a lot of the scenes in the game are, are quite filmic. A lot of the way that, that shots are set up and created. I think as you play through the game, you'll really sort of feel very, you know, more, more sort of immersed in the story because of that, um, that particular style. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're a great team. They're clearly very talented, uh, you know, and I, I mean, as, as with all the teams we work with, we're trying to help find new talent and trying to help that talent then thrive and flourish. And um, certainly, I'm 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 pretty convinced that Throughline Games has, has got a very very uh, strong place in the industry in the future.
0: I'm like, it's definitely it's one of the best looking two D games I've seen. Like, uh, although I imagine it's very ambitious you know, if they're doing. Yeah if they're doing everything you know
1: uh, with like 2D hand drawn animation like you know. yeah it's um it's hard i mean it's it's hard work and there's there's a lot of uh, of skill and dedication that goes into something like that okay. uh last year in just let me think i think it was maybe may uh i went over to um to copenhagen which is where they're based uh, en route to the Nordic Game Conference in fact and uh, and popped in to say hello and I think at that point for the first time they had the whole game storyboarded along along this wall in uh, you know sort of left to right and then next layer down left to right and it was amazing to see it all out like that um, and uh, yeah I have to I mean it's I know it sounds obvious but it's moments like that where you realize just how much planning has to go into something you know, even when um, even when you are sort of working on a on um, uh, something that I guess, you know, we've got some games like Tokyo Dark has a lot of branching narrative. There's a lot of different permutations as to how that game's going to play out depending on the decisions you make. With Forgotten Am, uh, you know, and I think generally sort of most narrative-led RPGs are a little bit more linear, but even then... You know, the, just the, yeah, the, the the number of scenes and the amount of uh, attention to detail that you have to put into a game uh, is pretty spectacular. And, um, you know, I, I mean, in the end, that's, that's reflected in, in the amount of time it takes. Indeed.
0: Well, uh, uh, when I see this game, uh, uh, do you know of a game called Owlboy? Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can see why you'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that's yeah, like, another you know, lovely the, game. If you know the production history, I, that took like six, eight years to create. It all yeah, ed-
1: I'm not right. I'm not familiar with the length, but I can I can well believe it. Um, but um, I think that the the great thing for Throughline is they've got they've got a lot of talented artists there. Um, you know, they're still a, a small team. They're still an indie team. And um, yeah. but yeah, they've they've got a great work work ethic and uh, and fabulous dedication.
0: Uh, no doubt no doubt so um, how did you first get into contact with Fremont how how did you find
1: this game well that was actually uh, in 2015 um, and it was actually at Nordic Game Uh, so Nordic Game for for, you know a lot of people probably won't have heard of it but what you have over the course of the year is a lot of developer conferences dotted around in different places and these are basically events where developers and publishers and middleware and PR companies and, you know, everybody that has a role in the industry will, will go to one of these events um, and, uh, you know, kind of chat and meet and, and do business. Probably the most famous one is GDC, of course, which is, the, you know, the big one happening in, in San Francisco in a few weeks. Um, but you have a lot of smaller, more regional events, and Nordic Games is one of those. It takes place in Copen uh, sorry in Malmo, which is right on the southern tip of Sweden. Um, it's actually just over the bridge from Copenhagen, and uh, which is Denmark. And... Um, uh you you get about sort of 15 or 1600 people there um it's a pretty long standing event now very well known in in the in europe um and uh you know i I've, I've been going there on and off for many years actually um originally as as a journalist and then sort of more recently uh, you know as part of collective um and yeah we we just had a we met with them uh the, you know with we, we have like a meeting system where it's like a sort of speed dating i guess for for people to kind of meet up and, and exchange, um, you know, notes on, on their projects and see if people are interested. And I have to say, you know, as soon as they showed me, uh, they, they had a, a sort of a much more basic version of of, of the, the teaser trailer um, that was not narratively quite different, but it had the same effect, you know, very, very immediate. I just looked at it and thought, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. And, um, you know, from that moment on, it was, well, the first, the first, Instance actually wasn't about signing the game to Collective. It was actually about putting them in contact with um, with some other people that I know well, that uh, you know that was sort of looking f- to invest into stuff, but also to to help teams um, with just general business advice and sort of incubation. It's a it's a, a company called Execution Labs, based in Montreal. And um, uh, yeah, my my first instinct was was to sort of try and hook those guys up, and uh, and that that sort of turned out. Pretty well, um, and then when they were, you know, we sort of kept talking a bit in background about about the possibility of publishing, and um, yeah, in the end, it uh, it's it worked out worked out. So, yeah, you know, we're very very happy to uh, to be working with those guys.
0: No doubt. Um, now, this game is coming to the PC and the PlayStation Four, correct?
1: That's right. Yes. Uh,
0: like, uh, I think. Uh, well, it might not necessarily be the first Square Enix Collective title on consoles, but uh, you know it's the first like indie title that isn't an owned IP, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. Like,
1: oh. Yeah, well, Black Black: The Fall will also be on um, on. In fact, Black: The Fall will be on PS4 and Xbox One, um, and that that'll be uh, you know that that'll be a little earlier in the year. Forgotten Anne will be PS4 and PC. Um, and I think, actually, uh, I think I mentioned it was end of 2017. It's, I think it's going to be early 2018.
0: Right. Uh, um, uh, I suppose there's yeah. a system I should ask about, but um, you know, not so much professionally, but um, do you have any personal thoughts on the Nintendo Switch, since it's currently the hot topic in the industry?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, well, I, I, I could probably answer professionally and personally. Um, Uh, for all intents and purposes they're probably the same answer in fact i mean we we don't have any specific plans to to put any games out on switch um that's not because we're not interested it's just uh you know i think when when devs at this level are working on a game they will start off with certain platforms in mind um and at this point we we just haven't had enough information to be able to uh you know see if any of the projects were be appropriate for switch and sort of how that process would work so you know i think there's going to be a little while while uh, a little bit of time while developers sort of figure out what they need to do to to be able to port to that platform um so yeah you know it's i guess watch this space but um but but we've not sort of had any specific discussions at this point on a personal level i mean i think um you know, I'm really glad to see the excitement that there is uh, around around the switch, because I think Nintendo is such an important part of the industry. Um, you know, they they, I'm sure I'm, I speak for a lot of people when I think about how important they are to people's childhoods. Right? I mean, it's um, the 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 strength of the the franchises, and the, those iconic moments. Um, you know, I think they do things differently to to the other platform holders. And I suppose candidly sometimes that works better than others. but um you know I think it's super important that we have a third player on the platform side that isn't just about focusing on you know constantly pushing technology uh, uh, you know in the in the way that Sony and Microsoft do. um you know that's super cool, but but they're focused on different things. and, and again, you know this is this is um, a key element when when we look at uh, the meaning of of games you know i i'm a strong believer that meaning comes from difference so if they if nintendo were to try to do the same thing as as sony and microsoft um you know i'm not sure that that's really worthwhile for for get for, for gamers frankly um so we'll see you know i think there's a lot uh, of stuff to be seen you know how how um how how well it's received and what the um what sort of sales that it does, uh, but I think it's exciting and uh, yeah, I'm really really happy to, to see people respond to it well.
0: So yeah, it sounds about right. I mean and it's kind of in line with uh, you know, other people I've talked to about the switch and, you know, people are excited for it, but they don't necessarily know a lot about it in terms of like developing for it yet. At least the people who aren't, uh, you know, prophesying doom in the end of gaming as we know it, because Nintendo did anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I guess some people kind of get like to get caught up in the whole system wars thing. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I suppose sometimes people have expectations, and, and if something, you know, an announcement doesn't hit those expectations, then, uh, th- then people can be disappointed. But... Um, you know, I think there's a few notable things. Primarily, you know, the talk of uh, of of Unity, um, you know, sort of being uh, being one of the engines supported by Switch. Uh, I mean, I, to be honest, I I don't know the the full details on that or sort of how how embedded that is at this point. But but if that's accurate, I think that's that's really interesting. Um, the, there's a lot of games out there which I think would would have a real natural home on Nintendo platforms, which you know really haven't been possible uh, and they've ended up i guess finding a natural home on, on something like steam um because it's it's been more accessible in the past um so so i think it's exciting you know potentially for for teams we work with on collective but but i think for for big teams and small te- teams alike um uh so yeah yeah i'm looking looking forward to to release day and 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 sort of seeing, yeah. I mean, I think I think 2017 is going to be an interesting one to look back on for sure. Yeah, it's
0: like I do know that Unity is supported on the Switch, and UE4 is supported
1: on the Switch. Yeah, so. yeah I mean, it just it just gives them options. You know, it gives it some. It opens up suddenly to a whole range of possibilities, possible games that that it's going to make. Again, particularly for small teams, uh, you know, the cost and the the resource needed to to put games on Switch should, and I use that word advisedly because as I say, um, you know, the precise ins and outs, uh, you know, from my side at least are still TBC, but it should make that a whole lot easier. Um, and I think, you know, if, I think in the end the more choice for, for gamers that that adopt, you know, the early adopters of, of consoles, I think the better experience they'll have. So. Um, Yes, yeah, so, but as I say, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's still early days, and and we'll see how that goes. But but I think it's exciting.
0: Indeed. Uh, and uh, shifting over to Fear Effect Sedna, um, how's this game coming along? Uh, I recall reading some months ago that um, uh, uh, that a new company is helping out with the development of the game.
1: Yeah, that's right. We we wanted to do something a little bit different with this one, or, or I should say, we the developers were keen. Into, to I think try to find uh, you know, sort of different angles and new angles, things to try, and um, and they they met uh, with a company called Forever Entertainment, based in Poland. Um, you know they're actually a publisher themselves, and um, they they uh, you know struck up a good good relationship and the uh, and what it does it enables them to bring extra expertise to the table you know particularly um with respect to things like marketing and and and, uh, and that side of things so you know they've they've had uh, got a good track record with with um with the the projects that they've they've published themselves and uh yeah you know i think they were obviously interested in working with the sushi team um, and also on the fear effect ip so uh, you know, it's a, it's a slightly different relationship um, for us, but uh, but we're very excited about that game. We actually, um, we yeah, I mean, watching the, the sort of the milestone builds come in uh, for us to check out and uh, and see the progress, it's uh, it's making leaps and bounds um, in terms of progress. And um, you know, the style of the game is obviously different from from the original Fear Effect games. Uh, um, and uh, you know, I think we we talked about that previously in in terms of. Uh, you know, when you're looking at budgets, there are certain games that are going to be easier um, to, uh, I say, right. easier, less expensive to develop for. You know, and a sort of full-on first or third-person projects are, are generally more expensive or more costly in terms of resource. So switching switching up to to that sort of isometric um, shadow run style uh, game, you know, pausable real time, allowing that elements of strategy but also action. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see see what people make of it, but uh, but I'm pretty excited. The quality is looking good, and um, and again, you know, I mean, it'll be be it we'll be announcing release date for that uh, in in the coming can I say weeks um, weeks slash a low number of months. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, so, so it's going to be going to be good to see um, see how that one goes down as well.
0: Yeah, um, and if this is successful do you think this will you know revive the uh you know ip idea
1: well i think you know when we looked at what we wanted to achieve by uh opening up the old idos ip primarily it was to give developers a bit of a um a, a step up um simply because reviving an, an, an existing IP probably gives you a bit of a shortcut to awareness than, than trying to create and launch a, a you know a completely new IP. So, you know, for us it's really less about somehow kind of reviving a franchise and then sort of seeing how far we can milk it versus, you know, can, can, is it just something else we can do to, to try and um, uh, you know, give a, some sort of competitive advantage for, for for the developer that's working on it. So, yeah, I mean, we look at something like Fear Effect, and with Sedna, if it does well, you know, there's no reason not to not to continue that um, that relationship. And and you know, I think we'd obviously want to talk to to Sushi about that first and foremost. Um, but you know, even if it doesn't, we we still have other IP that uh, that is dormant that that people are always welcome to pitch on. I get asked quite a bit about Gex, um, but the truth is nobody has, has actually submitted a a credible pitch for the game. Um, and what I mean by credible is you know a, a sort of an active and working development studio. Um, uh, you know, we've had we had a few sort of scripts in from from people who remember it fondly, but uh, you know, for this particular element of the initiative, we're not we're not sort of soliciting ideas for us to go make the game. We really are are trying to open it up so that devs can come along and and hopefully benefit uh, from from that association. Mm.
0: Makes sense. Uh, Especially since, you know, in order to, you know, make a new game, you kind of have to have the uh, capabilities to, well, make a new game.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think... um, you know i 'm not saying that you 've got to have like a fifteen person studio lying dormant in wait but but certainly if you 're going to pitch on something then you know you need to be in a position where first of all you know what it takes to make that game uh, and you know you 've got a plan to 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 put together that team usually it 's probably easier for a team coming off a project uh, or you know winding one particular project down to to start pitching and and with with the um, the sort of forward planning to then move on to that you know, project if the pitch goes well, uh, rather than someone, you know, kind of building a team completely from scratch. I, I mean, what I would say is that funding is always going to be, uh, uh, you know, an issue. Um, we're not, we you know, it's not, we, we don't have like a big pot of cash to kind of throw a, a new fear effect or a new gex game. Um, you know, so while we're happy to to support, a, a you know, a concept through Kickstarter or, or something like that, or we're happy for teams to go off and find you know, they may have uh, funding of their own, or they may, you know, there may be pe- be people who want to come in and, and sort of invest into that project. Um, you know, that that's probably another challenge. I'd say that um, that that means it's not necessarily uh, a, a super easy proposal, but um, but it's there. And if you know, if if the if the situation is right and, and the t- there's a team that's interested, then um, you know, it's available for, for for people to to sort of come in and, and talk to us about.
0: this might be part of the the, if you will the downswing of being called the Square Enix Collective because you know when people see the Square Enix name they think you know the big publisher they think you know this is going to be a new you know game that you guys are funding or whatever and you know the lines could get blurred in in that regard
1: I think that's fair um I think part of that would sort of comes from perhaps, uh, uh, I think as an industry, we're not particularly good at talking about how the industry works. Um, So, you know, very, very, very simply, in order to make a game, you've got to have money um, because you've got to buy licenses, you've got to pay rent, you've obviously got to pay your staff. um, And, uh, you know, you're going to be doing that for, for one plus years, I guess. So, you know, that budget's got to come from somewhere. now. As a developer, if you have the money to make a game and you have your own IP, uh, you know, the, ideal, the absolute ideal is you don't need to take any money from anywhere, which means that when you put your game on sale, you keep all of the net revenue that you receive, okay? so you, know, you earn 100% of that net revenue. If you're, if you're putting something out on Steam or, or selling it in shops, of course, the retailer will always take a cut, but apart from that, everything comes to you. and that, That's the ideal situation. Um, if you're going to work with an investor or a publisher who's going to actually invest money into a project on the production side uh, and actually going to help fund that staff, that rent, that, that you know those licenses and all the rest of it, depending on the proportion of budget they give you, so if you need a million dollars to make a game and somebody gives you a million dollars to make it, that means that, that that investor or that publisher is taking all the risk. Now, it, risk is really the... Um, uh, the currency as much as actual dollars uh, because you've got to have a reason to take risk now the worst case scenario as a publisher is you could invest a million dollars and the game may never be finished or the game may be finished but it may ne- never sell a unit so you've got to be prepared to lose that money now obviously when you're looking at projects and you're looking at a team you know, you've, you've got to be pretty confident that's not going to happen because no one in their right mind would go in and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if we lose a million dollars, that's fine. So you have to make that judgment call. But in order to make that risk worthwhile, you have to make sure the benefit of putting that money in is clear. You know, if you put money in a, a high-interest bank account, I mean, maybe perhaps not so much right now, but, you know, a few years ago when interest rates were, were reasonable, uh, you know, you put a million dollars in the bank for two years, you, you don't want to put that same money into video game uh, development and end up making less money. You know, it, it, it makes no sense. So you've got to you've got to really know that the, the deal has got to be balanced so that if you're going to invest a million dollars and take all of the risk, it's got to be worth your while. So that means that you're going to take a higher proportion of the revenue that comes in for sales. In fact, if you're funding 100% of the game, you may take... Uh, you know, a a very high proportion of that. You may take the IP uh, and other things because, um, you know, you sort of have to say, well, obviously the developer's making the game, but if we're paying for all of that process to happen, then effectively, you know, it's almost like a work for hire kind of process. Now, the less therefore you need to take from from other people in terms of the portion of of the total budget, the more strength you have in the negotiation. So if you only need 10% of of the development budget, that puts you in a very strong position, and it means that when it comes to that, the the, the money, you know, the income from sales, you'll get a much stronger proportion of it. And if, you know, absolutely, you shouldn't even be thinking about talking about who owns IP because nobody else would have a right to it. There's a lot of nuances. Uh, some investors will look at taking a, a slice of your company instead of specifically a game. Publishers, I think, tend to prefer to look at project, you know, look at it on a project by project basis. Um, but but in the end, you know, different parts of the chain fulfil different purposes. You know, for us, if we're just publishing a game and we're not investing into production, then we're still taking a level of risk because we're going to be funding all of the marketing and, and you know, all of the QA and all of the age rating stuff and and all of that has a cost. So, we've got to be confident that we're going to not just recoup the money we spend, but ultimately, you know, we do want to make a profit on that as well. Um, But it's, you know, it's a a balance. When it comes to the IP stuff, so to kind of, you know, having explained that to get back to your point about, you know, should Square Enix fund, uh, you know, the the Fear Effect game or a Gex game? Well, we could, Um, there's no reason for us not to, but if we do that, what is it that that the developer's actually bringing? Uh, if we're funding the game, it's our IP, then, I mean, it's almost charity if we're going to give developers a reasonable cut of the profits because, you know, we're taking all the risk and, and in the end, I mean, we could just have an internal team make a game, right? I mean, there's, there's not really a viable reason for us to want to pursue that. Um, the idea behind this is that we want to limit what we take out of that game, you know, pretty much to just publishing and, you know, sort of just, I guess, a licensing fee. But we want the developer to be the majority earner in terms of that net revenue. And in order to do that, that means that we're really not looking to fund that particular production. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a sliding scale. The more we put in as a publisher, the more we'll end up taking out. So because we want this to be weighted in favor of the developers, we need to put in I don't want to say as little as possible, but we want to make sure that the, the, certainly the balance of of the um, of what's coming out is going to be is going to be in favour of the developer. Otherwise, there's not really a lot of point in us making the IPs available.
0: It makes sense for business reasons, at least.
1: Well, and that that's I mean, you know, if we if we wanted to be charitable, um, then yeah, I mean, we could we could just put money in a big pot and say, hey, we're going to donate money to a developer to sort of have a play around with a particular franchise. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen, but ultimately we're a business. Um, I think, and it's probably, you know, I'm sure it's a, a sort of a, a line you'll hear a lot, but you know, we're a listed company, we are legally responsible to shareholders and we do have to be responsible with the money we're investing. Um, you know, if, uh, if, if there was a, a you know, billionaire, um, who, who owned an IP and just wanted to toss it out there and, and, uh, and you know, kind of give some people a bunch of cash to, to, to experiment, then that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be fantastic. Uh, but that's not what this is. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a business opportunity um, that we want to try to create in order to, you know, make it worthwhile for developers. We're pretty open about how developers find funding. Um, we're happy to support things like a Kickstarter campaign to help them do that, as we did with Fairfax with... Sedna, um, uh, so that, you know, they, they'll end up getting the, the majority benefit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, and I think we've, we've been pretty clear from the start that it's not something we're looking to, uh, you know, sort of put Square Enix money behind. Um, I think if we were going to do that, we would probably need to believe in those IPs enough to sort of probably go, you know, go big and develop them internally. Um as it is, we have active IPs like Tomb Raider and, and Final Fantasy and Hitman and Just Cause, and, and we have dormant IPs um, like Gex and, and, and until recently Fear Effect. Um, and, uh, you know, so our, our sort of theory was the dormant IPs, you know, we have no plans to do anything with them ourselves. Can they be useful to others? Um, and, and that was really the starting point
0: here's a question has anyone like offered to say buy the gex franchise
1: no <laughs> no um i'm speaking I,
0: ha- hypothetically here, here. It's like yeah
1: no, like... no nobody's so i mean not, not not to not to my knowledge anyway um i don't know if if somebody made a credible offer I d don't, I don't know you know that that's that's definitely not wouldn't be my call to make i mean that would be uh you know sort of c e level c e o level uh, sort of decision um but uh, but yeah, who knows? I mean, I I, I wouldn't want to speculate uh, if uh, if something like that would be accepted or not. Fair
0: enough, fair enough. Yeah. Like, not necessarily gigs, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure there are like dormant IPs that people out there would want or whatever. But yeah,
1: yeah I, I mean, I, I know that offers have been made on 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 uh, you know franchises in the past, and and I think you know we we look on things on a case by case basis again i can't speak to the decisions um and the decision makers my you know i could give you my assumption and i would imagine th- you know it would be looked at uh, if that if 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 sort of we think that there's there is at some point potential either through licensing or development of a particular ip then we've probably got no real reason to sell um i mean if somebody made a you know a ridiculous offer that was you know, sort of almost too good to, to turn down. I don't know. Maybe that would be different, um, but I think you know, one thing that's important to to note is that certainly bigger companies do rely on. I think you know, having having a a, a portfolio strategy. Um, I think I think we're sort of seeing that there are there are going to be times when certain franchises um, perhaps become more tired. And, you know, if you have a lot of different things that you can sort of reinvigorate or bring, bring to the fore at different times, um, then, you know, that, that's maybe a good long-term strategy. Um, you know, I think, think Bethesda is an interesting company. You know, they've got a, a lot of outstanding IP. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, creating, they're creating new stuff as, as well as, uh, as, well as bringing, bringing other stuff back. I mean, you know, the Elder Scrolls series is obviously absolutely phenomenal and i'm a huge huge fan of that since since the very early days of that series but then they you know they come along with something like dishonored and and, and launch something entirely new and i was super excited to play dishonored 2 uh, last year and sort of go back into that world so yeah i mean i think different things come and go at different times um and sometimes you know i think big companies will look at some of that dormant stuff and say to themselves well who knows i mean there may be some things that we, we might have plans for in five, six, seven years, but now isn't necessarily the right time. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very hard to plan that kind of, you know, I mean, five years in the games industry is a massively long time. Um, so much stuff will happen in that in that period. So it's, it's hard to do that sort of level of long-term planning. But I think, um, you know, often you'd look at it and say, well, do we need to sell it? Could there be something in the future um, and that's probably how uh, the sort of factors that decision would be made on. So, sounds about right.
0: Right, so um, what's going on with your crowdfunding plans?
1: Well, um, we had a slightly quieter 2016 than, than we were expecting. Um, in the end, it was it was really down to scheduling. I think we, we only supported four projects across the year. I think normally we'd expect to do sort of seven or eight. Um, so we wanted to tighten things up for this year, and we started already with uh, with a game called Undungeon, which is a, a really awesome um, uh, sort of top-down um, platformer. I, I, I suppose it sort of reminds me quite a lot of Hyperlight Drifter in terms of visual style and and the sort of the action involved. Really interesting um, background to it. Some some cool kind of setup. Feels quite unique um and uh, they 're looking for fifty thousand euros really interesting team based in uh, based in in uh, eastern europe um and I think at the moment you know as we talk now they're they 're up around the forty five forty six thousand euro mark so they 're pretty close to their target and they 've still got uh, a good couple of weeks to go yet so so pretty excited to see them um, hit their target and, and sort of see how far we can push them beyond those stretch goals um we're already looking at, uh, at the next one, which, which uh, I can't share those details with you right now. But we do wanna try to to, to sort of fit in, you know, seven or eight uh, projects this year, as long as we feel that the, um, the crowdfunding environment will support that. Um, again, one thing I'd say is that when we first started supporting Kickstarters or, you know, crowdfunding projects in general, I think it's fair to say that we, Well, I had an expectation that as we got more experience, things would become easier. I'm not sure that's been the case. I think we've learned a lot and we definitely have uh, a better process for for supporting these things now. Um, You know, we know how to try to maximize opportunities. But uh, I think, you know, we're sort of watching quite closely what the overall level of interest is in crowdfunding. And um, and we'll just sort of... uh, continue. I mean, we, we obviously, we, we we put a lot into each of these campaigns. I mean, we asked for 5% of the net crowd funds raised. So, that's around 4% of, of whatever the the, de- the developer total is, assuming it's the target. Um, and that's, you know, that's not enough for us to cover our costs. You know, that's, that's not really a big deal for us because, um, you know, we're doing it to try to help developers raise funds. Um, but I think if we sort of saw a situation where the uh, the sort of crowdfunding ecosystem was was maybe shrinking or it wasn't enough to to realistically believe that we can help teams to hit their targets then then obviously we'd we'd look again at whether or not it was practical to continue Uh, but i don't think you know i don't think that's what we're looking at right now Um, but um, crowdfunding has been very volatile in the in the past few years Um, and i think it's very hard to predict exactly (laughs) exactly which direction it's going to go in Mm.
0: Right, And um, so finally, uh, are there any I don't know, proper, I guess, Square Enix Europe games that you wish to discuss at this point?
1: Well, personally, I'm super excited that Kingdom Hearts 2.8 is out today. Um, that's, uh, that's something I've been, uh, been looking forward to. And um, particularly because my, my own children now are at the age where they're massively into Disney. Um, and... Uh, and and so I sort of see it as a great opportunity to also introduce them to, to Square Enix characters now, <laughs> um, and uh, and it's got some great games in there. So so that's that's personally speaking, very excited about that. Yeah, two um, is you know, the for along with. I was going to say two point eight is the one
0: with the three DS one, the um, yeah, m- like cutscenes from the mobile one, and then the basically the rest of Birth by Sleep.
1: Yes, exactly. Ah, um, so uh, there's, yeah, I, I mean. I, personally, I, you know, I'm collecting them all, so <laughs> so this this is a a, a really nice addition. Um, but then, and I was going to say, not before long, we've got the Hitman box, um, which uh, which again, I'm very excited by. I, I I mean, I know a lot of people were maybe uh, you know, sort of the jury was out for them on whether or not the whole episodic thing would work. Um, I I mean, I'll, I'm not really objective, so. <laughs> Uh, believe me, if you will, or, or, or don't, but um, I really enjoyed the episodic stuff. I really enjoyed jumping into the, uh, the, the the different targets, the elusive targets, sort of seeing that story build. I, I actually find it really hard to play, um, you know, if the, game, if, if the Hitman game was only released in one box, you know, the, there's virtually no chance that, that I would complete that game in, you know, in sort of in the space of a couple of weeks. And, I mean, I talked about Dishonored too, how much I was looking forward to that game. I still haven't completed it, you know, I'm probably about two thirds of the way through. And just through life and other things, you know, I keep going back, you know, every every couple of weeks and do a bit more. Um, so for me, that episode I think was perfect because you jump in, do a few hours, uh, you know, one day, kind of go back to it a little bit, you know, every so often. Um, I suppose it's, it, for me, it sort of reminded me a little bit of, of how World of Warcraft has evolved. So you know you kind of go and you do your daily quests then you know a couple of times a week you might sort of go in and do world bosses or, or or you know your your guild raids or whatever um but you don't i think after a certain point of time once you've hit that level cap you don't go in every day and and sort of play loads you sort of keep coming back and keep kind of jumping in and out and um so it sort of felt familiar in that respect but that said you know i mean. I'm just, it's just an excuse to go through and play play through the whole thing again with the box. So, <laughs> um, yeah, pretty sure I won't finish it though in uh, any time soon. All
0: right, um, once again, Phil, uh, I'd like to thank you for uh taking time out of your schedule and joining us and giving us updates on what the collective's been doing. Yeah.
1: You're welcome. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah once again for for having me it's, it's it's always a pleasure and uh yeah very very as i say very happy to be to be one of those emerging familiar faces
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good to hear that's good to hear and we'll certainly catch up with you probably later on in the year when you've got more um, announced projects that you can talk about
1: yeah. brilliant yeah there's there's loads to come for collective and um yeah i'll, I'll be be interested to see what you make of uh, some of the some of the stuff we're, we're going to be announcing for sure
0: indeed um right so that'll about do it for this installment of fragments of silicon um be sure to tune in for our what we're now calling alpha episodes um our wednesday shows with the main shows um we're we'll welcoming kurt um lodi lodi uh, honestly not sure how the, he pronounces his last name um of the Dragonloth, and we'll be talking about a game called hellenica tactics uh, a recently released uh strategy rpg that just uh, just came out on steam i think today or you know really recent no. and until such time i wish you good game